Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Mushrooms, what they are, how to locate them, and how to cook them is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Chef Chad Hyatt, who, after leaving a 10-year career as an engineer, realized that cooking was his true passion and became a classically trained chef. As part of this transformation, he focused on mushrooms and sought out new techniques and traditional ethnic recipes from all over the world to apply to mushrooms. Chef Chad is the author of The Mushroom Hunter's Kitchen. This book provides over 100 easy-to-follow detailed mushroom recipes, some of which we discuss in this interview. And for that reason, you might want to be prepared to take notes of some of Hyatt's comments. The Mendocino Mushroom Club will present a Mushroom Delight Dinner at the Casper Community Center on Saturday, November 10th, 2018. Chef Chad will be in charge. For further information, go to mendocinocoastmushroomclub.org. When Chef Chad Hyatt and I visited by phone on October 28, 2018, from his home in Santa Clara County, California, we discussed mushrooms, what they are, how to cook them, and how to safely forage wild mushrooms. We began our conversation with a focus on general details of cooking and started when I asked him to expound on the opening sentence of his book, Great Food is All About the Details. When I first started working in professional kitchens a decade or more ago, one of the sous chefs I worked for uh, made that comment to me that great food is all about the details. And what he meant by it and what I mean by it is really all the details, not just about the ingredients you're working with. Of course, the ingredients you're working with are going to be important and paying attention to them and giving them the proper love so it comes out in the food is important, but also just everything, the way you approach cooking, the way you, the, the mood you're in when you come into the kitchen to cook, all of these things come through in the food. And so it starts there. And just having the right attitude and the right approach when you start cooking is the first detail. But then also, when you start cooking, not doing it haphazardly, not doing it, everything you do has to come from a place of intent. So when you're cutting your vegetables, are you cutting your vegetables in a way that is best for the way you're going to cook them? Are you cutting them in a way that's best for the way you're going to present the dish? When you choose what pan you're going to cook the stuff in, are you choosing a pan that makes sense so everything cooks perfectly? Because if, if you choose a tall, narrow pot to cook to saute some vegetables or mushrooms as opposed to a wide pan, they're going to steam instead of saute. That's an example of a random cooking detail. But even even how you plate the food, when you the way you put the food on the plate makes a big difference to whoever is going to be eating it later. So all these details that you have to consider when you're cooking and it, it just takes experience and practice and time to understand how different details affect the cooking you do. When you say it's the mood uh, when you begin to cook, how might a person with limited experience be able to implement that in her or his uh, 
future culinary adventures? Well, first of all, definitely cooking, learning to cook is, is very much a trial and error thing. Um, you, you don't get the experience you learn to get better without just trying to cook something and seeing what happens. And um, I have made a lot of mistakes in the kitchen and I've messed up a lot of dishes in the kitchen, probably more than almost anybody listening to this. <laughs> and I, I still, and people pay me lots of money to cook for them because it's just part of the process of learning is you're going to make mistakes and you just have to accept that. And the, there's no great tragedy to making a mistake in the kitchen. The worst case is your food doesn't taste as good as it could have. But it's not the end of the world. Probably won't make. Uh, it probably won't taste bad, and probably won't yeah. uh, uh, cause exactly. Problems. It's still nine times out of ten, it'll still be perfectly good, and your family, your loved ones, will be happy to share it with you. Um, so that, that's the first part. Is trial and error is part of the process. I, I have learned infinitely more from the from the cooking I've done where I've made mistakes and I've messed things up than I have from the things that went well because when you make a mistake you'll remember it for the rest of your life when you make a when you make a big mistake cooking something you'll learn from it because you'll remember so that takes us to to recipes and you write that recipes are not gospel tell us more oh absolutely I think that I think for most things, recipes are just a, a rough guideline. And the more experienced you get with cooking, the more you'll do things by feel and by taste. I think just trusting your own instincts and your own taste and using whatever ingredients you have instead of trying to force exactly the recipe as it's written, that, that's part of evolving as a cook and learning how to really cook. Um, th there are exceptions when you're, when you're talking about baking things and making pastries and things. Uh, you, you need to measure ingredients carefully, and, and, and recipes matter a lot more. But when you're talking about making soups and stews and salads and even roasting things in the oven, recipes are a lot less important than just trusting your instincts and your taste. So a variable that you do mention is keep it simple. Simplicity and, re and restraint. I think the biggest thing to remember is that you cannot take something out once you put it into a dish. You can always add something in, but once something's in the pan, it's in the pan and you're not taking it out. If you're working with good ingredients to begin with, they're already going to taste good on their own. You just want to give them just enough love that they can be themselves and shine. The more you mess with them, the more complicated you make things, the more difficult it is to keep that kind of balance and that and the natural flavors of those ingredients shining through. And then you say, when we talk about salt, uh, be consistent. Use the same kind of salt. What's that about? Salt is the most important ingredient in your pantry. And learning to season properly with salt is the most important skill you'll develop in terms of cooking good food at home. It's not so important what salt you use. What's important is that you're used to what you're using so you know how it affects the food, how you, you know how it affects the seasoning when you put a little bit in or a lot in. I think that that's the important point and why I say that consistency is more important than 
what specific salt you're using. The salt's just necessary. If you don't use enough salt, your food's not going to taste like anything. Salt brings out flavors. The other portion of cooking that you address is the use of fat. Fat helps bring flavors to your palate. Fat kind of absorbs other flavors and the fat coats your mouth. That helps you taste things. So a lot of times that's why chefs will finish things with butter or with olive oil. It actually brings, it brightens up and brings to the front all the other flavors so they coat your mouth so you can taste them better. And so you need to use fat to to have food that's going to taste good. And just if you want a brown food in a pan, in the oven, fat is a necessary vehicle to get good browning processes going on food. And similarly with spices, creating them, using them fresh, grinding your own. Everybody I know has a spice cabinet full of ground spices that probably were there since they moved into their house, or maybe they were passed down from their mother who got them from her mother, and they've been in their house forever and in their family for generations, and those spices tend to not taste like very much. So if you want big, bright, bold flavors in your food, you need fresh spices. Um, Spices oxidize and all the aromatic uh, chemicals in them that give them the big flavor and aroma, when they oxidize over time, they just lose all their impact. So if you start with whole spices and you grind them as you need them, they'll always, even if the old, even if the whole spices are old, they'll be much, much more strongly flavored and aroma. They'll have a lot more impact than pre-ground spices. Um, and also if you toast them fresh before you, before you grind them, then they'll have that much more impact. The toasting tends to liven them up. I'm not sure I understand the chemistry well enough to explain that, but every chef I know tends to toast their spices before they use them. How do you toast them? Basically, the easiest way, depending on the spice, but for most spices, you can just get a saute pan, put it on medium heat, and just add the dry spices to the pan and just kind of shake the pan, move them around the pan until they start getting really fragrant. You'll smell them coming up from the pan, and that's all, and then just take them off the heat before they burn. I would cool them down a little bit before you grind them. Just let them cool at room temperature for a couple of minutes. And when you say spices, is that across the board? Yeah, absolutely. Even even black pepper. Grinding fresh black pepper from toasted peppercorns versus just getting pre-ground black pepper. It's like a completely different spice. You'll hardly recognize it if you've never done it before. It's amazing the difference it makes. And not just with black pepper. This works across the board with cumin or coriander. Coriander is one of those spices that's kind of magical. When it's toasted, it's it's a really floral, perfumey kind of spice. And when it's not toasted, it tastes and smells like pretty much nothing, just for example. And that's you, you can play with all kinds of different spices, and you'll get the same thing. But one one little addendum on the end of that is that I would not toast dried herbs, just, just spices, like different kinds of seeds and those sorts of spices, not herbs. It's mouthwatering. Well, thank you. You talk about substituting. If you don't have what you need for your recipe. If the recipe calls for asparagus, and asparagus is out of season and the only asparagus you see at the store or the market is kind of wilted and sad looking 
but the broccoli is in the height of season or the Brussels sprouts look beautiful, you're going to wind up with a much better dish if you just use whatever vegetables are good in the moment. Good food and the details of good food are all about just using whatever ingredients are best. And if you want to make something that's all about the asparagus, but the asparagus isn't very good, maybe instead of making the thing that's all about the asparagus, find something else to do with the, with the ingredients that are good at the moment. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Chad Hyatt, the author of The Mushroom Hunter's Kitchen, Reimagining Comfort Food with a Chef Forager. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Chad, let's focus on mushrooms. Mushrooms is a very general term. There are a lot of different kinds of mushrooms, and the answer for each of those mushrooms might be a little bit different. And um, I think that's some of the fun in the book, is exploring a lot of different kinds of mushrooms and seeing how you might treat them differently. In doing that, how do you treat different mushrooms? Uh, some treat it one way, others treat it in other ways. Most mushrooms from the store differ from most wild mushrooms in one simple way, and that's wild mushrooms tend to have a lot more water in them, and that's going to affect the way you cook them usually. The usual cultivated mushrooms, whether you're getting your button mushroom or portobello or shiitake, tend to not have a very high water content, relatively speaking. And so get a pan nice and hot, throw in enough fat to coat the pan, and throw in your mushrooms. You just want to not crowd the pan too much. You can cook them until they're kind of lightly browned. If they absorb some of the fat, add a little more fat just to make sure they stay coated with fat. If they're not coated with fat, they won't brown very well. For typical cultivated mushrooms, that's really all you need to do. You know, season them with salt. You can add whatever other things to the pan that you like. With wild mushrooms, a lot of times, because they grow in pretty wet environments, the water content of them is very high. You usually want to do some step to get rid of all the water when you cook them. You'll start by getting a pan really hot, and then you'll add your wild mushrooms. We're talking about chanterelles or porcini are both really common mushrooms around Northern California here. You'll add them to a hot pan, and you won't even add any fat to the pan. You'll see they'll start releasing a bunch of water. And as they release the water, the water will evaporate off. When the water kind of has reduced down completely to zero, then you want to add in your oil and saute them up the way you browned your other mushrooms slowly. Chad, you talk about browning mushrooms, and I'm curious if that has an effect on the taste or if it's just a term that you're using. Okay, so that's, that's an important question. When, when we're cooking mushrooms, browning makes a huge difference to the taste, actually. The mushrooms usually taste pretty mild before you cook them and even after you cook them, but you bring out all kinds of deeper, meatier flavors and aromas. When you, when you actually brown them, you're literally getting a brown color on them as you cook them. They'll start to crisp up a little bit. Is this true of all mushrooms? This is true for most mushrooms. There are a very small handful of mushrooms that I wouldn't saute and brown in a pan, but for most most mushrooms you would ever see at the store and even most mushrooms you could ever pick wild, this, this would be true. The, the biggest exception I can think of is uh, there's a very highly prized mushroom called matsutake, which is... Um, 
It's, it's one of the most prized ingredients in traditional Japanese cooking. It also happens to be one of my favorite mushrooms to work with. Um, but it, it, it's one mushroom that just doesn't react very well to that kind of browning. It, it's, it's one of the very few mushrooms I wouldn't saute in a pan. But it, it, has, it has naturally a very musky, almost cinnamon aroma to it. And the browning does funny things to that particular mushroom that aren't very pleasant. Chad Hyatt, I'm, I'm interested in mushrooms in particular. And what caught my attention in your book, The Mushroom Hunter's Kitchen, is your comment about mushroom ceviche. And in my experience, ceviche is normally made with um, cubed small pieces of fish soaked in, in lime or lemon along with some spices and cilantro. But now you've brought up the concept of doing that with mushrooms instead of fish. Can you tell us about that? So, yeah, so ceviche, you started to describe a little bit, but for those who don't know, it's, it's a traditional dish um, found in a lot of parts of Latin America. The fish is usually cut up in small pieces and tossed with a, an acidic ingredient, usually lime juice. And the lime juice actually cooks the fish. It denatures the proteins and cooks the fish. And it's, it's popular in a bunch of different cultures, but my favorite has always been Peruvian ceviche, and it's a, it's a very simple version of ceviche. But I, I've always found it really elegant and very well-balanced, and it's, it's usually just lime juice, chilies, and onion with some cilantro, and that's all. And they'll put in, often they'll use like boiled sweet potato as a garnish just to kind of balance out the heat and the acid. For me, I found that there's certain mushrooms are very mild flavored and have a really meaty texture that lends itself to the same kind of application as the as the white fish does in the traditional version. The, the biggest difference I found in doing the mushroom ceviche versus doing a fish ceviche, a traditional one, is that mushrooms don't get cooked by acid. So with mushrooms, you actually want to give you want to give them a pre-cooking, and I like to do it by boiling because it doesn't really change the flavor of the mushrooms. And we were just talking a minute ago about browning mushrooms and how it changes the flavor. In the ceviche, I want the mild flavor of the mushrooms, so I'm just going to boil them and cool them down again and then toss that with the, with the acid so they still have that same kind of cooked texture as you'd get with the fish but then they absorb all the flavors from the acid and the chilies and the cilantro really well. How long would one boil them? Usually just a, just a few minutes, two or three minutes. And this is something I talk about a little bit in the book, too. Most Americans think the idea of boiling mushrooms is insane. It goes against everything most Americans are taught about how to handle mushrooms. But um, mushrooms are not plants. And the structure of mushrooms is made from the same chemical that makes up the structure of lobster shells, chitin, and that structure doesn't really break down when you boil it. it. It actually keeps a firm texture, and some mushrooms, the texture will actually get firmer when you boil them. So it sounds a little counterintuitive because with vegetables, usually you boil them and they turn to mush, but that doesn't really happen with, with mushrooms. But again, just to your question, for, for this, I would just typically boil mushrooms for maybe about three minutes before I do it for the ceviche, just to make sure they're cooked through. And then you add them to the lime juice after they've been cooked. After they've been cooked, I would just cool them down just so that you don't want to add them hot to the lime juice. Yeah, with the lime juice and chili and a little bit of salt and let them marinate like that for as long as you want. 
I would usually let them marinate at least 20, 30 minutes or so just to make sure that the flavors really marry. So tell us about another one of your favorite mushroom recipes. I'd like to share something maybe that, again, is a little out of the ordinary for most people with mushrooms. And I like to make condiments like jams and such with, with mushrooms. I have one in my book. There's a mushroom that grows in very large numbers some years in, in Northern California and, and other places, too. It's actually a fantastic year for it back east. And that's a black trumpets, and they're very aromatic, very, very good flavored. And you'll see them in stores sometimes in the season. And I like to make a jam with black trumpets, where I basically cook the mushrooms down with a little bit of fennel and onion, and then add brown sugar and a little bit of vinegar. And after it's cooked down, I like to blend it up and make a jam. And it works as a great condiment to serve with cheese or you could put it on a burger. This is one I wouldn't put on top of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but there are other versions of mushroom jams I might even do that with. And can you give us a recipe that might work for someone who hasn't made jams uh, and would like to have a quick meal or an addition to a quick meal? And when they pass by the mushroom department of the grocery, what would you suggest they obtain and, and integrate into the meal? One very classic way to use mushrooms, uh, very popular in Italy, is to make a very simple pot of, of polenta. And just with polenta is basically cornmeal. It's basically a cornmeal porridge. And you, you can do this on top of rice. You can do it on top of polenta. You can do it on top of pasta. But then I would take, you can go to the store, whatever mushrooms you get at the store, whether they're button mushrooms or shiitakes or portobello or any wild mushrooms they might be selling, you, you can cook the mushrooms down. And when I say cook them down, I mean slice them up and saute them in a big pan, then add some onion, cook the onion down, and then add a little bit of, uh, a little bit of red wine, let the red wine reduce down, then add some tomatoes and just stew, stew it until the liquid comes out of the tomatoes. And if tomatoes are in season, use fresh ones. If they're not, use canned tomatoes. It'll work just as well. And when the, when the liquid comes down out of the tomatoes, you can take it off the heat and you can just pour it over your polenta or your, or your pasta or your rice. And that, that's a very simple way to make a big meal for a big comfort food type meal with any mushrooms you have on hand. Chad, your book has more than 275 pages to it. Can you tell our listeners which page number of your book that recipe may be found? On page 194, I have a recipe that will also give you a couple different ways to do the polenta and some more details on different ways to do the mushroom ragu I just described to put on top of it. So on page 194. And let's turn to where mushrooms come from. One is secure, as from known vendors, grocery stores, farmers markets, or reliable people. And the other is out in the woods. You stress extensively in your book, if you're not 100% sure about the mushroom being edible, don't try it. The risk factor is deadly. So can you talk about how one learns to forage mushrooms that won't be poisonous? 
there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for everybody. The important part is take your time and only ever eat something if you're 100% sure of the identification. There are a lot of very good field guides. There are a lot of very good internet resources. The easiest thing to do probably is to find your, your local mushroom club. Certainly throughout the United States, in every state, I believe, there's at least a mushroom club or two. So that, that's a good place for beginners to go to find knowledgeable people who can help you keep you on the straight and narrow so you don't do anything dangerous. And I think that it's important to stress, as you did so clearly in your book, how critical it is to know what you're eating before you eat it if you find it growing in the wild. Uh, absolutely. Eating wild mushrooms is dangerous and potentially deadly poisonous if you are eating anything and you do not know 100% what it is. The only rule there is about edibility for mushrooms is know exactly what species that is and know whether or not that species is edible. It is imperative that you take the time and the effort to, to do it safely and properly. The other thing to remember is that you don't have to learn everything in one day. The way it works for most people is you learn one or two distinctive mushrooms, things that are distinctive for you, and you start there. And as you get comfortable with those, you start eating those. And as you get to know those, you start to see others, and others become more distinctive to you. Chad Hyatt, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. And the first question is, can you share with us a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life or your view of the world? Yes, I don't have to think very hard about this one. I was working as an engineer for about a decade when I got out of college. I knew I didn't really want to keep doing it. I wasn't particularly happy. And I, I remember a very specific incident. Something clicked in my brain, made me think, you know, I really should just cook for a living. My whole life kind of spun around that moment, and that was more than 10 years ago. And I definitely the biggest change in my life by far. It changed everything you may have just answered the next question, but tell us, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? <laughs> yeah, I, I really did kind of answer the next question. I just would like to continue on the path I'm on. I'm, in, I'm enjoying cooking. I'm enjoying the people I'm around. I'm enjoying writing. So I just want to keep on the same path. And finally, Chad Hyatt, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, this, this is going to be way off topic from what we've been talking about. I spent some time in Spain this summer. I picked up a book by George Orwell called Homage to Catalonia. Even though it was written 70 years ago or something like that, it just seems so appropriate to the current political climate here and in Spain where things have been disintegrating for a while. Just a really good, interesting read that changed my perspective on a lot of history. Well, Chad Hyatt. Thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Chef Chad Hyatt is the author of The Mushroom Hunter's Kitchen. The Mendocino Coast Mushroom Club will present a mushroom delight dinner at the Casper Community Center on Saturday, November 10th, 2018. Chef Chad will be in charge. For further information, go to the Mendocino Coast Mushroom Club.org website. The book that Chad Hyatt recommends is Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell, based on Orwell's experience in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. 
This program was recorded on October 28, 2018. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.